Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Dustin Bass with the Sons of History. Welcome to another episode of the Sons of History podcast. Now, I know last week we had mentioned that we probably weren't going to have an episode because we didn't have a guest lined up. Why? Because this past weekend was my 40th birthday, and I've been out and about celebrating painting the town red or something like that. But anyways, we do have an interview lined up for you. This is actually one of our military interviews. This is an interview with Arthur Leach. He was a Navy fighter pilot in World War II, a distinguished Flying Cross recipient. And wow, what an interview it was. I really had a great time talking to him. He's 101 years old, still has incredible uh, recollection of all that was going on before, during, and after his time in the war. Uh, I believe credited with three and a half kills uh, and just a really great interview. And he was just throwing jokes out left and right. Very humorous individual. And I think that you're going to love this interview. So sit back, relax, Enjoy this interview, and if you want to watch or listen to any of our other military interviews, you can always check those out on our website, thesonsofhistory.com, and you can check out the Military Interview tab. You're going to love those, and remember, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, and also leave us a rating and review here wherever you're listening on the podcast. Without further ado, here is the Author Leach. How are you feeling, Art? You feeling all right? Art's doing okay. Fantastic. Hey, uh, before we get started, you were telling me a second ago about your first car. I want to get everything in perspective. What was your first car? My first car was a 1924 Model T Ford, and I bought it when I was a junior in high school. Um, for the total sum of 18 bucks. How much was gas in those days? Uh, 16 cents a gallon. And uh, it, the tank, you sat on the tank, the driver, and it held five gallons. And uh, it would go 45 miles an hour. Hey, and 45 miles per hour is pretty much as fast as anybody needs to go. That's as fast enough in that rumbler. Uh, all right. Now, uh, Art, you enlisted in the Navy in February of 1942. And you enlisted while you were in college. How did that work out? Uh, I was in my senior year in February 42. Uh, I would graduate in June, but I received a notice to take my draft physical and I hitchhiked home about 40 or 50 miles uh, to take it. And um, afterward, I went up to the draft board and I said, you're going to let me graduate, aren't you? And they said, did you pass your physical? And I said, yes, I did. And they said, you'll be gone in two weeks. And I said, uh, I didn't realize I was that important to the war effort. And I went out the door, which was a big wooden door. You can visualize what it looked like with glass in the middle. 
and I slammed that doggone thing as hard as I could. And of course, all the glass fell down the floor and I just kept walking. I went across the street to the courthouse and asked a couple of the officials if they would write me a letter of recommendation. I was going to try and enlist in the Navy to become a pilot. And I stopped at a couple banks the same way and asked the president to do the same. And I was walking another block or two to my father's office. He was an insurance and real estate man. And I told him what I was going to do. I was going to hitchhike back to college and over to Peoria, which was about 70 miles. And uh, I was going to try and enlist to become a pilot. Uh, that I did. And I took a preliminary physical and a, a sort of a written exam. And uh, they were satisfied with that. And they gave me a ticket to go to St. Louis and take the rest of the physical and that. So I went back to Bloomington and uh, got on uh, what was called an interurban, like a streetcar, went all the way down to St. Louis. And uh, there were probably uh, 500 to 1,000 guys there to take physicals for different things. Uh, two of us passed to become pilots that day out of the bunch guys would be colorblind or couldn't hear enough. And I could hear back then, you know. <laughs> and I could look at girls too, but I didn't. Right now I can still look at them, but I don't remember why. I'm sure uh, there to remind you. Yeah, well, the two of us, uh, of course, we had been dilated our eyes and we couldn't go any place. We made it across the street to a tavern, though, and uh, uh, we stayed there for a couple of beers, I think, back then. And I don't drink beer now. Yeah, well, hey, I, uh, I'm taking up the slack for you. Oh, you you getting enough, are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm taking up your slack. You, I think that being 101 years old, I think it's attributable to a good bourbon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Leanne agreed with me. Uh, so, Art, why did you want to be a pilot? Why did I want to be a pilot? Um, most of the guys that had graduated from my fraternity in 1939, 40, and 41, you couldn't get a job. So the majority of them enlisted in the military. And 
probably nine out of 10 of them became pilots or navigators or bombardiers. And uh, I guess that's what I wanted to do because they had done it. And a number of them were uh, Navy or Marine. And of course, the rest of them were uh, Army Air Corps then. It wasn't called the Air Force. There wasn't an Air Force as such back then. But, uh, it uh, worked out that way. Uh, I made a deal with the uh, uh, Navy to let me graduate. And they said, when do you graduate? I said, June 8th. Well, on June 10th, I was getting a haircut and getting a uniform. Wow. That's the first thing they do is give you a haircut. At, um, I had uh, the pleasure of being in the second uh, pre-flight school. Uh, the Navy began pre-flight schools just before uh, I got in there and uh, I reported to the second class, which was at this time, uh, I was going to Iowa City to the University of Iowa where they were conducting this for about three months. And then I got sent to uh, St. Louis to uh, Lambert Field and uh, that was a preliminary uh, uh, flying. Uh, we were in uh, the open cockpit uh, Stearmans and N3Ns, uh, biplanes, 225 horsepower, and they'd cruise around uh, 100 miles an hour. Um, we flew those for about 35 hours, I think it was, and then we got sent to St. Louis and we got into uh the by not the biplane but the um uh snj which was a 650 horsepower and um it uh had retractable uh landing gear and uh, electric flaps and that and it would cruise about 150 to 60 and uh, it, we were in those for probably 50 to 60 hours for three or four months and then we got sent to Pensacola and we flew the same type aircraft in formation and then uh, uh, instrument flying and so on and uh, that was about six months. So it took about 11 to 12 months to complete the flying. And I got my wings and uh, my uh, commission in uh, May of 1943. And uh, I got uh, married that same evening 
And the next day I was on my way to Jacksonville and then I got moved right away to Miami and uh, we went to uh, advanced fighter training down there. The airplane we flew was an obsolete uh, combat aircraft called the F-2A Brewster Buffalo. Uh, it was 1100 horsepower and uh, it uh, had a long landing gear sort of bounced when you came in to land and uh, we flew those for about three or four months and uh, we did field carrier landings uh, practice for simulated uh, uh, aircraft carrier uh, landings <clears throat> and I got sent to Glenview, Illinois, which is north of Chicago a little ways. And uh, we were going to fly from there out to Lake Michigan and do our uh, carrier landing practice and qualification. Um, on converted cargo ships. Uh, uh, they had two of them, the Wolverine and the uh, Sable. And I don't recall which one I landed on, but I was the first guy of the group that was out there, probably six or eight of us. And uh, we were flying the SNJ at the time uh aboard and you had to do six satisfactory landings well i was the first one to complete the six and the guy jumped up on the wing and gave me a little piece of paper he said this is your uh, heading back to glenview go up and wait for the rest of them to qualify and so I was the guy that led them back. And uh, then I got my orders for uh, San Diego to a fighter squadron. And when I got to San Diego, he said, oh, your group isn't here. They're up in Seattle. So I had to get back on a train and uh, get on up to Seattle. And we flew out of Seattle for about two weeks, and then they moved us to Whidbey Island, which is north in Puget Sound. And uh, I was fortunate enough to find an apartment in a little town on the island. The island was mostly a resort area. and. Uh, Towns were very small. I don't remember the um, size of it, but uh, it's still in existence, and so is the airport. And a United Airlines captain friend of mine, his son is flying out of the same airport that I did. 
only he's doing a, a depth charge airplane uh, called the Poseidon uh, twin engine. And uh, um, he just got back from Japan. He had been on temporary duty over there. His father has a good time talking about what he's doing and what I did and that uh, he's doing at the same place gets a kick out of that. Uh, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. Uh, a bit of a small world there. Now, after Seattle, you wound up in, in Hawaii. What was it like when you wound up in Hawaii? In Hawaii? We went out on the Essex from Oakland, California. Uh, it was transportation. There was no action at all. Uh, the Essex uh, applied a zigzag course all the way out. And I don't recall the number of destroyers that they had for screen, but uh, it was transporting uh, a bunch of army people and a bunch of equipment that uh, there was no uh, uh, activity at all on there. And they only served one meal a day to you because there were so many extra people. And uh, of course, uh, that would be the same size, the Essex class. Uh, that was the first one, number nine in that class, and the Yorktown was second, number 10. And uh, there was probably a, about 30 of them that, before they changed to a bigger ship. Uh, the Yorktown and all of the Essex class had uh, 875 feet of uh, uh, runway at the flight deck and uh, had about 3,500 personnel on board plus the air group, uh, which would be about 300 more. Uh, we had 36 airplanes, fighters to begin with, and they ended up, we had 40, Five and then 54 and then 72 aircraft. And that's uh, quite a few. Yeah, Bombers had about 18 and the uh, torpedoes had about 18. Uh, and we would escort them. Uh, we were probably 20 miles an hour faster than them, so we wove back and forth to, to use up the extra speed. And of course, we were layered above uh, them to protect them in case an enemy uh, came about. And when they did, why then we were supposed to shoot them down. And, and, um, so when when did you when did you enter into combat? 
we came into uh, Pearl Harbor, of course, in uh, Hawaii, and then uh, they moved us after they unloaded our airplanes and that onto the uh, Hickam Field, uh, which would be right at Honolulu. And uh, we were going to be based in Maui, which was two islands down south. Uh, uh, I have no idea just how far south anymore, but uh, we ended up moving from there to the big island, Hilo, down the very south one and the biggest one. Uh, and we spent time there and then we ended up on Kauai, which would be the northernmost for a little while. And then we moved back to Oahu to wait for the Yorktown to be uh, ready to go to war. And of course, we practiced all the way out to the Southwest Pacific. Um, our first action was in the Philippines after the Battle of Midway. And uh, we did uh, a lot of bombing and that in uh, various islands of the Philippines, Manila and Luzon, uh, primarily the, the biggest island, and then Mindoro and uh, Mindanao, which would be next, and Lady and Samar, I think was the name of the other one. Uh, and then we moved on up to uh, what is now Taiwan. It was, uh, what was it? I think it was Formosa. <laughs> Formosa, Formosa was called, yeah. yeah. I don't know who picks all the names. <laughs> yeah, and then we moved on. We went over in the China Sea and ended up in French Indochina, now called Vietnam. And we, engaged in uh, Saigon, and I think they call it Cameron Bay now, and uh, the Mekong River. Uh, we shot up the gunboats and that. Uh, and of course, you get down low to do that. What was that? What was that like getting getting down low and shooting the gunboats? Well, we could do 400 miles an hour and of course we're a little harder to hit when we're doing three or four hundred uh, we'd pick up a little ground fire get bullet holes in the wings or the fuselage and as long as it doesn't hit something life-threatening why it doesn't matter particularly it, uh, it'll fly with a hole about half the size of your bookcase behind there. Yeah. 
That's right. So now what, what planes did you, did you fly in or did you just fly in uh, one particular plane? Uh, Hellcat was an F6F made by Grumman, uh, cost the uh, Navy about $30,000 then. It had 2,250 horsepower. And uh, as I say, it would do a, a little over 400 and carried 400 gallons of fuel. Uh, that would be 250 gallons internal in the wings in the fuselage and then a 150 gallon belly tank. Uh, it was droppable, but you never dropped it out in the fleet because you'd end up without them pretty soon. You'd, and you needed the 150 gallons. Uh, we'd be in the air um, four and a half to five and a half hours in a fighter. And uh, of course, there's no place to go to the bathroom or that, and, and nobody serving lunch. You had a pilot relief tube under the seat which was a funnel with a rubber hose to the bottom of the fuselage. And uh, I wouldn't advise using it. Yeah, I wouldn't either. <laughs> well, the plane captain had doctored it, of course. Uh, he had uh, either wrapped the hose around some things before it got to the clip under the seat and uh, you couldn't get it up to where you needed it for the action. And uh, if you did, why then, of course, he had fixed the hose so it was too short to empty. And the only place to empty it was to get it up to the canopy and open the canopy about two inches and the air would suck it out but um, when you found out it wouldn't reach that far uh, and of course it had filled up because he had put gum on the outlet and i mean he had anticipated and of course he had cleaned it all up you just dumped it in the floor, of course. <laughs> Couldn't sit there and hold it forever. Well, <laughs> easier to hold it before you used it. <laughs> Guess they never heard of Depends, did they? <laughs> thought about that. Yeah, get the Depends out. Uh, he was, of course, laughing the whole time that you were gone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Until laughing when he had to clean it up. <laughs> exactly. Now I was a good airplane. Uh, yeah. I'm sure it would have been very difficult to be holding it and trying to land on a carrier. What was it like to land on a carrier out at sea? 
where the carrier's moving, of course, and it gets going about 30 to 35 miles an hour. And uh, with the wind over the deck, you're landing at about 90 to 100. And uh, you uh, come over the deck and circle. You adjust on the downwind leg. Um, to get your position and your height and relation to the ship. And uh, then you start your turn to come up the back, but you don't want a long, a straight way because your engine is big and you cannot see the deck when you're going straight up behind it, trying to play catch up. And you want to be in your turn as you come over the back end and you angle back flat and cut. You should be right over the back end of the deck when you cut and settle in. You want to get the first, second, or third wire. Uh, there were eight wires back then to catch a prop airplane. With the jets, there's three wires, only three, and they're coming in at 125. That's incredible. And they don't have that big nose, of course. They can see where their pilot is sitting and everything slopes down and uh, they drag it up the back and they're playing catch up. And I have never done it, I've just watched it. But so which carrier, which carrier were you on? We were on the Yorktown, which is now a museum in Charleston, uh, South Carolina Harbor. And as I'd say, it was about 100 feet off the water, the flight deck, uh, about 90 feet wide and uh, 875 feet long. You didn't get all of that to land on, about half, because they'd parked the aircraft that had landed before you on the front end and, of course, readied them for the next flight and uh, the barriers would go up uh, to catch you if you didn't get a, a wire and keep you from running over the ones that were up there. And if you came in too fast, you'd be floating over the barrier and land on the guys that had landed before you. Uh, that occurs occasionally and, of course, kills everybody that it hits. Uh, flight deck is a dangerous place. And, of course, you take off at 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning and you can't see the end and you got to get off. <laughs> How do you know? I mean, how did you know that you were close to the end to where you take off? How did, how did you gauge that? 
the launch officer uh, is standing probably 455 feet from the end of the deck, the front end, and uh, he's going to rev you up to full power and you're holding the brakes and it doesn't take you long to get going pretty fast. And uh, a lot of guys don't make it. Uh, and of course, uh, you never see them again. Uh, uh, the ship runs right over them, you know, when they flop in the water. Yeah. And uh, if you're going a little bit slow while you sink, and then, of course, you uh, don't want to splash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The airplane would sink in 15 seconds. And of course, it's going to sink even faster with the ship doing 30 miles or more. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, you hear it scrape all the way to, down the we had several that didn't make it. Uh, we had one guy come to us and he, he was on a pre-dawn launch the next day. Uh, I thought that was wrong that they shouldn't have put him on a pre-dawn and we never saw him again. Uh, he didn't complete his first hop. Pretty wasteful. Yeah. That is sad. Yeah. Uh, the ship would always launch you uh, about 200 miles from where you were going, the target area, and they stay in a comfortable zone. And, and you work your navigation in the ready room. Uh, before you go out on the deck and man your aircraft, uh, the uh, airplanes are brought up from the hangar deck and spotted and uh, the officer of the day gets the spot for where they are. And of course, the, if the captain is leading the group why his plane and his group are the first ones uh, to take off. Uh, they catapult the first few to get enough deck to launch uh, the rest of them. Uh, they probably launched 10 or 12 of them uh, from the uh, catapult. The catapult is 120 feet and you do 120 at the end of it and it throws you off. And uh, it's quite a jolt. You put your head back against the headrest. If you don't, you'll have a broken neck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lesson you only learn once. And when you come into land, you want to be sure that your shoulder harness is tight. Otherwise, your teeth are going to be on the gun sight. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
speaking speaking of gun sites, the Hellcat was was made to defeat the Japanese Zero, and apparently it did very well. Um, how did you do against the Zeros? The Jap Zero was slightly faster, but of course, when he's getting shot at by you behind him, <clears throat> he's taking evasive action, which uses up some of his speed. So we could make up the difference when he'd make a sharp turn. Well, he's a bigger target also, and we could cut inside and play catch up. Now you you shot down, or you were given credit for three and a half planes, is that right? Three and a half, yeah. Uh, one of our other pilots and I were both shooting at, at the same airplane, and so we each took half. Well, tell me, tell me what was that like to be going after an enemy plane and, and shooting one down? What was that like? How difficult was that? That's what you were sent out there for. Uh, I never looked at it that I was shooting a, an individual. I was shooting at a piece of equipment. It just so happened there was somebody in there. And uh, of course, I felt differently when a tracer bullet went flying by me when he was on my butt. But uh, yeah. you, you don't think of them as people. Uh, guys that do uh, go crazy almost. It's difficult. Um, there's a Marine came back from uh, over in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he says, I'm still killing. I'm still killing. I said, don't look at it that way. I said, look at it that you were shooting at a gun that was shooting at you and you were supposed to eliminate the gun. Quit thinking about people. And I don't know if he ever did, but uh, yeah, it's got to drive yourself nuts doing that. Uh, yeah. Now, there was a moment, um, and I've heard you during several interviews, that you thought you had gotten hit. But it wasn't it wasn't blood that was that was pouring down your back. What was it? Well, um, I didn't hear that story. We were um, flying at, up to Tokyo at that time, and uh, this uh, tracer bullets were flying by. Guy was on my rear end, and I didn't know it, of course. And he was getting closer, but he. It, fortunately, his aim was uh, even with us, but he was off to the side and it was going by. And uh, I 
felt something run down my back and I reached back there. I thought, gee, I've been hit and it doesn't hurt. Well, when I came back, it was all just a cold sweat. <laughs> and uh, I felt good that I was able to sweat. Yeah, right, yeah, and not bleed, right. Yeah, not blood. <laughs> So how long did you serve in the Navy? How long were you in the Navy? I served, I was four years uh, uh, counting the training and uh, the time overseas. And then uh, when I got out of service, I went back in the ready reserve and I flew every month uh, uh, out of Glenview. Uh, for 10 years and so i got to fly jets for quite a while and what was your rank when you left the navy i was the same as a captain and navy called it a senior lieutenant and uh, when i um, finished at glenview I had been notified that I was going to be promoted to uh, lieutenant commander, which would be the same as a major in the Marine or Army. Uh, but I didn't bother to accept it because I was going to quit. And secondly, I wasn't going to get a pension anyway. So. Uh, rank would mean nothing particularly yeah so you I two stripes up here <laughs> same as a captain um i don't remember how much money we made uh, uh, i think uh, about seven or eight thousand a year at that time and of course we got uh, uh, flight pay which would be uh, a little extra and, and i've forgotten what that amounted to uh, it was according to your rank the more rank you had the more pay you got the more flight pay you got uh, i always thought that was wrong i, I thought the, uh, a major or a captain or a lieutenant they, they all ought to get the same flight pay for doing the same duty particularly uh, and i think that's the way it is now uh, you know a general uh, would uh, not have near the opportunity to get shot down uh, because he's going to be behind the lines. And here he is getting uh, enormous flight pace. Yeah. Just ask backwards if you pardon my French. There's a lot of things that are asked backwards in this world. So. Now, uh, you you earned you were awarded two air medals and the distinguished flying cross i have a dfc and two air medals right i uh, 
have no recollection of what the citation said. In the early 50s, after we built a home, it burned. And my officer jacket and my citations and all that burned up with it. And my armament and my uniforms and everything. And so I haven't refreshed my memory on any of that. I said, so we forgot about some of that stuff. Yeah. Well, that stinks that you you lost everything in the in the fire. That's terrible. Yeah, everything. The house burned to the ground. Right. And fortunately, we it was February then. We had not been to my wife's parents down Bloomington since Christmas, so we had gone away for the weekend. We had one suitcase for the three kids and mom and I, and uh, there wasn't anything. My dad called us on the phone and he says, don't hurry home, there's nothing to come home to. And uh, when we got there, we knew what it was. It was nothing, right? Foundation. Uh, the furnace did not shut off, uh, malfunction, and uh, it melted the joints on the copper tubing, bringing the uh, uh, gas into the house. We lived out in the country, so we had a thousand gallon tank in the backyard and copper tubing leading to the furnace. And uh, of course, when uh, the copper tubing melted, what uh, everything filled up, and it was kaboom, and it just blew. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. So, Art, I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. I know I, I enjoyed. I enjoyed you. Okay. Yeah. No. I hope we can do this when you're a hundred and one. Well, if you're still around, we'll do it. <laughs> well, you'll have to ask the guy upstairs. <laughs> he owes me a favor. A ask him what he did with me. <laughs> I will. Okay. Thank you, Dustin. Thank you. It's been fun. I've had a good time. We hope that you enjoyed this military interview and we thank you for watching. Now, before you leave this video, if you can like and leave a comment on this video, and if you haven't yet, subscribe to our YouTube channel, it would be greatly appreciated. Now, if you're wanting to know all that we're doing at the Sons of History, just visit our website, thesonsofhistory.com. Again, thank you for watching.